Well, as I finish this week's message about Jesus entry into Jerusalem on this day that we call Palm Sunday, I wondered, what are people coming to worship today to hear? And I wondered, what will they hear? How does this story that has been repeated so many times and has been heard so many times by those of you who have been faithful in your worship, how does this story retain its glory, its significance? Is there a way for it to fall fresh on our ears, at least so that our familiarity with it will not dull its importance? Well, in simplest terms, the triumphal entry of Jesus is one more event in the earthly life of our Lord that shows his determination to save from judgment and destruction those who will receive him. And that's the flow of, of our passage, the passage that Mike has just read to you. That's, and that's really the, the summary of this message, is that Jesus, the King, God in human form, comes in peace to save those who will receive him. Back in chapter 9, we read that he set his face resolutely. He was resolved to go to Jerusalem. He was resolved to die for the sins of the world. But why? What compels him? What moves him? What drives him to the city? Well, I believe the answer is love. Love for the Father, who's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And love for humanity. Love for us. Who, if we were to remain alone in our sin, could never be at peace with God and are eternally separated from Him and rightly deserving of judgment and wrath. What love this Jesus has for the lost ones that He has come to seek and save. What a testimony to the love He has even for us that He was willing and he was determined to give his life a ransom for our souls. I thought, well, that's a pretty good attention grabber. That ought to be enough to make someone want to sit up and listen. There is a connection in this familiar story for every believer who's ever heard it. The God of the universe loves you. And he sent his son to die in your place. And that son was determined to do exactly that. And then, of course, there's this to remember. What we've already heard this morning from the word and what we're about to explore for the time remaining actually happened. It actually happened as Luke records it. 
the events of the story are true. No names have been changed to protect anyone. No portion has been altered for dramatic effect. Warning, the images may be alarming. Church, some 2,000 plus years ago, on a Sunday, long past, the Son of God, who had come into this world to save it, sat on the humble colt of a donkey, and amidst the cheers and the adulation of the people, he entered the city of Jerusalem. Our Father and our God, open now our eyes and ears and hearts to the glory of your truth, to the glory of this story about your Son, who loves us so, so much, that he was determined to give his life in our stead. Help us to receive him this day. Amen. Well, everyone loves a parade, at least that's the way the saying goes. And as we come to our text this morning, we see a jubilant, excited, expectant crowd picking up momentum as it nears the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, who had spent most of the last three years teaching about the kingdom of God and trying to stay under the radar, so to speak, so that the many miracles that he was performing would not detract from his preaching about this great truth, is now ready to be on display, is finally ready and willing to be seen as the honored dignitary of this parade, as the nobleman, as the king that he is. Luke tells us, when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, which that's just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So if anyone has missed the point so far in our series or in your reading of Luke's Gospel, Jesus knows full well what is about to come to pass, okay? He is making his way to the death that he predicted. And he knows precisely how everything is going to play out. Reading ahead, he knew the disciples would all scatter from him. He knew Peter would deny him. Remember these things? He knew Judas would betray him. Entering the city, he knew exactly how he was going to do it and why. And previously, Jesus had gone to great lengths to not reveal who he was. But now he's ready to fulfill the prophecies that have been made about him. He is ready to be revealed as king. Jesus is king. He sends two of his disciples into the village saying, you're going to find a colt. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. Can you imagine how many times something like this happened to the disciples in their time with Jesus? 
even though it was a brief time, relatively speaking, just a few years, right? Can you imagine how many times something like this must have happened? Certainly it's not recorded in Scripture how many times, but John tells us that the miracles of Jesus, the miracles that Jesus performed were so vast and so great, so numerous, that if they'd all been written down, he says, I suppose the world couldn't contain the books that they'd be written in. In other words, we get a distinct impression from the end of John's Gospel that when we're reading through the Bible, we're only getting a very small, select portion of what Jesus was up to, of what Jesus accomplished, of what Jesus did. And I can just imagine that there were many occasions when Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen, and they wondered, how does he know this? And when they went into the situation, it happened exactly as he told them it would. How many times do you suppose events unfolded just as he told them? And how many times in the days and the months and the years following the resurrection of Jesus would they look at each other in awe and amazement and say, again, it's happening just as he told us it would? How does he know all of this? Well, we're reminded here again in this simple example that Jesus is not only king, he is God. God in human form. And the Bible affirms this about Jesus, right? John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Philippians chapter 2 speaks about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus is God. Good teachers, moral men, mere men, which is what a lot of people these days will say, well, Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Or Jesus, Jesus was a nice moral man, but he was not God. And I'm just saying that good teachers and moral men and mere men do not have the ability to look into the future, and, and say what is going to happen or see what's going to happen. Jesus knows the future. He knows what it will be because he is God. Now, friend, I want to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe in? How have you come to understand him? Is he in one of those categories in your mind today? Well, I don't, I'm not sure that he's God, but I think he's probably a good teacher, which I want to take issue with you right there real quick, just real quick and not in a mean way. But if he's a good teacher, do good teachers lie? Because good teachers, I don't think good teachers lie. And Jesus was very clear about who he was. And here he's making quite a declaration as well. Was he just a good and moral man, counted among many good and moral men? And if that is so, why do we continue to talk about him? And why does he continue to be a divider in households and in nations? Think those things through, would you? Because the scripture says that Jesus is God. It's very clear in his declaration. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself the second of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been. He always will be. He was present in eternity at the beginning of creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first. He is the last. Jesus is God. 
for a time, God was in human form. And here we're reminded of that. And you might wonder, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why are you making such a big deal about that, Pastor? But the big deal is this. When we were separated from the God who made us because of our sin, and when we could not get to our God, He came to us. He came to us. Because it always was, and it still is, the intention of God to dwell with man. He desires to be with us, His creation. And He desires to be with us, I hope you know this, because He loves us. We are loved by God. The Scriptures say, with an everlasting love. So who and how God is, a pursuing, loving God who wants to dwell with us is what Jesus has come to show us. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? These are the scenes in the Bible that make me laugh. Right? I mean, that's a completely reasonable question. Hey, hey, Martha, Martha, somebody's stealing the colt. A couple strangers show up in your yard. They want to take your brand new, perfectly shined up, zero mileage donkey. Well, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? And they said, they said, by the way, just what they were told to say. The Lord has need of it, and apparently the owner said, oh, okay, no problem. Which I think, look, when God gives you a word to say, say it. Amen? If God gives you a word to say, say it, because that word is the key. And that word turned the key here. That's all the disciples needed to say, and they secure this beast, this little colt. Now, this is not a main point of the passage by any stretch, but it is something I believe worth contemplating. Uh, Friend, could you, would you, give up something precious in your life if Jesus has need of it? If Jesus asks you to. Do, in other words, do you live in an open-handed way when it comes to your goods and your possessions? Is what you have, is what you cherish, available for God's use? The animal is released to the disciples and they brought it to Jesus and throw in their cloaks on the colt they set. Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So up until this point, all the traveling that Jesus did, at least as far as we can read, was primarily by foot and occasionally by boat, but this is the first we see of him riding, and in his riding into Jerusalem, Jesus assumes the posture of a king. Because you see, dignitaries were, were uh, recognized this way in a processional. And the casting of the garments before them, the casting of the palm branches we read in other Gospels, is the ancient version of rolling out the red carpet. But there is an important difference here in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as opposed to how a conquering hero might enter. You see, Jesus is not riding a horse. 
That comes later, and if you were here last week, we read that section in Revelation 19. There is coming a day when Christ is coming on a white horse. If you haven't read that section in Revelation 19 uh, lately, go back there, please, and read it. Because he's coming, for sure, as a conquering king, but he's not riding on the horse here today as a conquering king. He's not on that white horse of military victory but rather he has chosen a humble colt, which is a way of saying this king comes in peace. And he does this purposefully. Remember, he commanded the disciples to go get the colt. Somebody's saying, well, you know, is this, a, is this a coincidence? No, he does this on purpose. He told them to go get the colt so that those who are familiar with the scriptures of the Old Testament might recognize, and those not so familiar with the scriptures, I say Old Testament, back then it was the Testament, but those who were not familiar with it, right, would be able to look and see that what he's doing is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that we find in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is king. And the peaceable way that he chooses to enter the holy city makes the accusations that would be leveled against him and the way that he would be treated even more egregious. I ask you, is this cult the mount of a revolutionary? Is this humble and lowly plodding into Jerusalem the invasion of one who is attempting a coup? No, not at all. Not remotely. The way that he wants it, he comes in peace. And he comes meek and he comes gentle. He comes in peace to bring peace to all who will receive him. That was true then. That is true now. If you find yourself here today in worship, but you are not at peace, Jesus Christ is the peace you need. Isaiah prophesied of him that he was what? The prince of what? Peace. And Jesus said, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. It's a different kind of peace because it's the peace of reconciliation with God, which is everybody's fundamental problem. That's why we don't have peace. Anytime we don't have peace, it is because we are not reconciled to God. And Jesus Christ has come to reconcile us to God. And he tells us, Paul writes about it, that he is our peace. Jesus comes in peace. And I pray that you know this peace of Christ today. And that if you don't know that peace, you might recognize that today is your time of visitation. Today is your time to receive this peace that God wants to offer you through His Son. As He was drawing near, already on the way, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice 
for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This crowd is ecstatic. Luke says that they're cheering because of all the mighty works that they had seen. If you were to read about this in John's Gospel, you would know that one of the mighty works that has everybody so wound up is that a lot of those people that were part of that crowd had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. It had just happened that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there were many other miracles that Jesus had done and many things that these people had seen themselves and certainly the word of his fame and his power and his goodness and his teaching and his authority was spread all over the place. They know that he's powerful and they know that he is popular. And so they cheer him on with words from Psalm 118 and they chant the message the angels sang at the time of Christ's birth. Sounded familiar, didn't it, when it was read to you? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace. Goodwill to men. Of course, not everyone in the crowd was happy to see Jesus. There are always those who are not happy to see Jesus. A group of religious people had been hounding him for a long time, seeking how they might accuse him, seeking even for a while about how they might find a reason to kill him. And these same ones were plotting to kill Lazarus as well. Did you know that? Because on account of Lazarus, they were saying many are believing in Jesus. So not only do we need to get rid of this Jesus, we need to get rid of the evidence. We need to get rid of Lazarus as well. That's where their hearts are. That's where their minds are. The popularity of Jesus imperils them. The popularity of Jesus threatens them. So they want to wipe out anything associated with Jesus so they can be popular again, so they can be large and in charge. With their critical eyes and their jealous hearts, they see the crowd in a frenzy. They see this crowd giving Jesus the laud and the honor due to a king. They see Jesus accepting the coronation. They see Jesus accepting the recognition that he is, in fact, the Messiah. They don't like it at all. They don't, they don't like it at all. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Quiet this crowd down. Rebuke them. Tell them that they're wrong. But he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, no. This worship, this recognition is entirely appropriate. And if the disciples wouldn't do it, creation itself would declare the glory of God. Well, I want you to think about this. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But for his entire 33 years on the earth, Jesus has not received a smidgen of the recognition and the appreciation of the glory or the honor that was rightly due to him. 33 years. I know some of you are laboring in thankless jobs. I know some of you 
are struggling in thankless relationships. I know some of you today feel undervalued and taken for granted, if I might, for the sake of perspective. Can I hold up your condition and circumstance to that which Christ endured for you? Not to minimize in any way your struggle or your pain, but truly to give it perspective. With the wisdom of Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, who says, Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It could be hard. It probably is hard. It may be very hard. You may feel like it's killing you, but it's not. For 33 years on this earth, the Creator of this earth labored in love and never received anything consistently that remotely rose to the level of praise and adoration and appreciation that he deserved. And in Philippians 2, we are told to have in ourselves the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, who though he was everything, chose to become nothing in order to save others. So no to the Pharisees' request. No. If for a blazing moment the people get this right and they recognize this Jesus with their worship and their adoration, then that is how it should be, how it should have been all along, how it's going to be when one day we gather around the throne and we sing praise to the Lamb who was slain. He merits this praise. He is entitled to this worship. Jesus, the King, God in human form, comes in peace and deserves to be recognized, deserves to be received. And when he drew near, Luke tells us he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. As Jesus sees this city, he begins to cry. But friend, he's not welling up in some stoic New England way of hardly expressing emotion. Do you, know, you notice that about us New Englanders? It's really ridiculous. We have such problems with emotion. I mean, maybe it's true in other places, but it's horrible here. I mean, the, the way that you know that we're upset is we clear our throat. <clears throat> I mean, we act like a black fly just flew into our eye. You know? you know, there's nothing like that going on here, right? When Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, the word Luke uses to capture the scene can be translated to shed tears. 
But this same word translated wept in Luke 19.41 is not from that root word of tear, but rather the Greek word, it means to mourn, to lament, to bewail. Weeping is a sign of pain or grief for the thing signified of those who mourn for the dead. Jesus' eyes are not puddling up. He is weeping audibly. He is crying unashamedly. He is sobbing when he sees Jerusalem. And why? Why is he weeping? We might ask, why does anybody cry? And if we are truthful, we would say that many of the tears we shed, we shed for ourselves. Not always, of course. We shed tears of joy. There are those unfortunate occasions where we must shed tears of pain, as in when we hit ourselves with something or fall down on the ice. We do have hearts that from time to time are broken by the hurts and the disappointments of others. The scripture tells us to weep with those who weep, and we do. But honestly, folks, a lot of times we cry for ourselves. A lot of our tears are shed because of our assessment of our situation, and we cry because we are full of self-pity. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to put up with this? I don't deserve this. You find none of this in the weeping of Jesus. He is not crying for himself. He is sorrowing over Jerusalem. He's sorrowing over the city. He's sorrowing over the people that he loves. And why is that? Because even as he has fittingly greeted as a king here on Palm Sunday in a matter of only a a few days, this crowd is going to turn on him. And those who are for him will be against him in large number. In the sports world, we call that being a fair-weather fan, don't we? Fair-weather fans, maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. I don't know. But they're the people who support their team if it's winning, but to jump ship on that team to support another one if it happens to be winning. Their ultimate loyalty, of course, is to their desire for themselves to be a winner, not to any particular cause or team. Several years ago, Kyle Eidelman wrote a challenging book about this. It was called Not a Fan. Maybe some of you have read that. In it, he defines a fan as an enthusiastic admirer, and that is what the streets are lined with here in our passage for today, enthusiastic admirers. But Eidelman writes in the Gospels, Jesus never seemed too interested in fans. He was looking for followers. And he still is, you know that. He still is looking for those who will follow him. He still is looking for those who are willing to deny themselves to take up their cross and to chase him into eternity. He's looking for people who are willing to figuratively lay down their nets and walk with him, who are willing to lay down their coats and their palm branches and worship him. Jesus is looking for people who will trust him enough to turn from their sin to loosen their grip on the things they think they need in order to be happy or successful or satisfied, to find their meaning and their contentment in Him. And His invitation remains 
As long as we have life, this invitation is extended to those who are thirsty. Come, come and drink the living water of Jesus. And if you're hungry, come, come and eat the bread, the bread of life. And yet it is, even as I make that invitation on behalf of our Lord, a reality. A reality that we see in these latter chapters of Luke's Gospel. That many people and all sorts of people do not respond to this invitation. And do not receive the Savior. Do not recognize the time of their visitation or the opportunity that is in front of them or allow it to pass by. Indeed, we see that the people here rejected Jesus outright. And John's Gospel is right, that He came into His own and His own received Him not. He has momentary fans on the road to Jerusalem, but precious few followers. And in a few days, their cries of Hosanna are going to turn to cries of crucify Him. Crucify Him. Go ahead and kill Him. And so Jesus, when He looks over Jerusalem, weeps, but He's not crying just because He's going to be rejected. He's not crying because He's going to be killed. He's crying because Israel's rejection of Him seals her destruction. He is crying for what happens when people spurn what they need for true peace with God. This prophet who saw a colt ready to be taken and ridden looks into the future again and sees something else. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jesus sees the destruction of Jerusalem, which you may or may not know literally came to pass. In 66 A.D., the Jews rebelled against Roman occupation. And the emperor at that time was Nero. And Nero sent an army to extinguish this Jewish uprising. And by 68 A.D., they had things pretty much in hand in the north region. So the soldiers, under their general, Titus, turned their full attention on Jerusalem. And in 70 A.D., the Roman forces surrounded the city for five months. Nothing went in and nothing went out. And they starved its inhabitants. What did Jesus say? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. 
after five months, the Roman soldiers breached the outer walls and they began a systematic ransacking of Jerusalem. And the historian Josephus recorded the events that happened after the soldiers broke through. And this is a lengthy excerpt, but I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to ask you for a moment if you might put yourself right there in Jerusalem with a breached outer wall after having been starved and locked in your city for five months. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions, for passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions. Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with its generals and looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute in our own. As the flames had not yet penetrated to the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure. He ran out, and by personal appeals, he endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire, instructing Liberalius, a centurion of his bodyguard of lancers, to club any of the men who disobeyed his orders. But their respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion staff who was trying to check them were overpowered by their rage, their detestation of the Jews, and an utterly uncontrolled lust for battle. Most of them were spurred on, moreover, by the expectation of loot, convinced that the interior was full of money, and dazzled by observing that everything around them was made of gold. But they were forestalled by one of those who had entered into the building, and when Caesar dashed out to restrain the troops, pushed a firebrand in the darkness into the hinges of the gate. Then, when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew, and no one was left to prevent those outside from kindling the blaze, thus in defiance of Caesar's wishes, the temple was set on fire. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, and no regard was accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike, were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. 
There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards in mass, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people who cut off above fled into the arms of the enemy and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below and now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger when they beheld the temple on fire found strength once more to lament and to wail. Perea and the sounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din, but more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The Temple Mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. Jesus weeps, seeing Jerusalem and the destruction coming to it for its rejection of him. And this is just a foreshadowing, friend, of the destruction of all. It is the fate of those who will not likewise recognize the time of their visitation, who refuse to know what makes for peace. The destruction of Jerusalem is a preview for all who will die in their sins without a Savior. Jesus, the King, God in human form, comes in peace to save those who will receive him. And those who do not, will be judged and destroyed. Our Father, our God, you desire to dwell with us. You have made the way of salvation abundantly clear in your precious Son. You have paid the price for our ransom, for our sin, in the death of your only Son, in order that all who will believe would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we who know this everlasting life lift our hearts in praise to you, who while we were yet sinners, enjoy the sacrifice of holy God that we might be reconciled. God, we praise you and thank you, knowing that there was nothing we could do and no, no deserving thing in us that would warrant such love and grace extended. We give you praise. And for those, Lord, who today do not have such a relationship, have no confidence in such a salvation, Maybe for the first time even hearing the opportunity of salvation. Lord, we pray let this day be a day of salvation. Let this be a day as you come in peace that those who do not yet know you as Savior would receive you. And Father, we pray for mercy. Open eyes and open hearts 
not just for the people in this place this morning, God, but we think in our own families of those who do not have a relationship with you, who do not recognize you as king. And our hearts are pricked to think of the fate that awaits them, that awaits all who would die in their sins without a Savior. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you today for the determination of your Son who set his faith resolutely to go to Jerusalem to be killed for us. We thank you that he was willing to do that, to die for us. And we stand in the gap this morning and pray on behalf of those who do not have this joy, who do not understand this truth. Penetrate these hardened hearts. Open these blinded eyes. Snatch these dear ones away from the clutches of the enemy. We pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen.